Hello, and welcome to the Metacast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Brady Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 156th episode of the Nauticast titled The Tea Party, an analysis of a storm of swords, Sons of One, in which it's just us girls gasping about boys at the ladies' tea while the fellas are out hitting those links. The Terrells would golf, wouldn't they? You know, I bet there's someone at High Garden whose whole job is whenever Mace hits one in the water to drop a ball on the green. That's someone's <laughs> job 24-7, 365 days a year at High Garden, guaranteed. That would be my job. I would be the ball dropper for <laughs> the official ball dropper. Don't the sell yourself short dropper. there, Jeff. That's there's right. like a, there's like a little TM on the end. There's some flowers in the font. <laughs> it's very classy. Yes, the, the classiest the class- of ball droppers. Absolutely. That's I'm all about the ball dropping in these episodes. Yes, 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 indeed. And for and for Maestro, I always drop his balls whenever he wants. Wow, this got weird real fucking fast. I'm again. sure he's what grateful can I for say? it. Indeed. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard Mark M, Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilt Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane. Lord James, the gym that was promised. Lord Jake assisted to the Hand of the King. Lady Zena Valyria. Sir Jack Lord of Sir Arthur and Prince Breaker Targaryen. Sad Prophecy Boys Club. His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B. Lawrence, Prince of Dorne. Kelly wore the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs. Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds. The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden. Lady Stephanie. Lord Carlos. Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God. Sir Sorcedelica. Sugar Tit Stent, the Trog Delight Warrior. Lord Pension for Nostalgia. Queer Alex Beyonce's favorite stand, Herald of Cher, Ambassador of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and General Thems, and the Nauticast Non-Binary, Not an Army. Haul over the way for T-Wow, A.A. Ron Dampair, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crow's Eye, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Golgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, the Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blunder Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle. Lady Elizabeth, Mistress Force, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, the Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fells, Marshall Hapson, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark of the Gabbergang and Horror of Heron Hall. Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal, pseudo-democratic system of great councils wherein every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices. Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues. Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur de Prince Breaker Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club. Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan. Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Bone Way. Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State. Squire Matt as future Matt as the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms. Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warriors of the South, and a patron of free wheeling bisexuals. 
Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate. Lord Christoph of Everdell, official ice bastard deliverer, the valiant pungent reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love queen Anna. Lord Sir Septon Ruthers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, War of the Kingswood, and Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms. Sir Kel, contractor in charge of continually extending the small council table. Lord Travis, Mentat, Master of Ships, and the Third Stage Guild Navigator. Lord Anonymous, Lord Anonymous II, Lord Tyler, the Prince who promises to wait patiently for the Winston winner, Lord DB, and our two newest members of the Small Council. Everyone say hello to Sister Winter, formerly a high lady who joins the Small Council with a new title, Sister Winter, hopeful romantic and unrepentant chipper, and Lord, and Lord Monsef. Thank you to all of our Not a Small Council members, and welcome to Sister Winter and Lord Monsef. Thank you, as always, to all our counselors, but special welcome to Lord Monsef and Sister Winter. So good to have you with us on the council now. That's great. It's brilliant. Thank you so much for your, for your support, as always. And our spoiler warning, as you say, in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three ducking novels, histories, interviews, the Winswinter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question comes from Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, Warden of the Kingswood, and Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms. Hi guys, I'm a new small council patron and I hope you get to this sometime after you start back up with Storm. You all inspired me to do a reread which I have been heavily enjoying alongside the podcast. My question is this. During Danny 3 in Game of Thrones, we get Doria's story about the origin of dragons, where a second moon drifts too close to the sun and cracks. Then a million dragons pour out of it and drink the fire of the sun. Could this be symbolic of relations between the Targaryens and Martells, whose sigils are dragons and suns respectively? What do you think about that, Jeff? That's a a lot of people have taken a lot of ideas from that that little story we get in Game of Thrones. Do you think that has something to do with what's going to happen between a House Targaryen and Martell? This is a, this is a tough question to answer because does it mean that now? Did it mean it when it was originally intended? These are kind of like the hard things. So let's back up to the year of our Lord nineteen ninety six when George R. R. Martin publishes a Game of Thrones. At that time. The impression you get about Dorne is that he ha- kind of has this vague idea of what Dorne is as a place. He knows that Elia Martell is from Dorne. He knows that Elia Martell is married to Rhaegar Targaryen. And he knows kind of some of the parameters of where Dorne is on a map. One of the things he did when he was writing a Game of Thrones is that he literally drew on a piece of paper the map of Westeros and kind of outlined where the Seven Kingdoms are, although he ends up changing his mind about a lot of where the places are. The thing about Dorne and about the sigil is that was also sort of established in the Game of Thrones, but I can't really tell whether George had any idea that the Targaryens and Dornish and the Martells would have a in a, a relationship. And I think, it, and I think when we go to that these visions in Danny's early chapters, they are ambiguous enough in my mind that George R. R. Martin was thinking, "I can do whatever I whatever the fuck I want with these visions someday down the road," because. I've got this ambiguity here. It'll eventually mean something or there'll be a multitude of meanings that it could potentially mean. And that's what he ended up using. So that's 1996, George R. Martin. 2021, George R. Martin might say that absolutely these things are explicitly intended to be interrelated with each other. And it's supposed to be about how the Targaryens and Martells are supposed to interrelate and how the dragons are going to come to Dorne potentially. Although he has said that they are not going to burn the water gardens in a relatively recent as of like three years ago not a not a not not a blog not a blog post so i i think so that that's the that's the the that's the doyalist side i'm curious what your watsonian take is on this whether you can like interpret this from the text itself i think this is a a good example of sometimes 
of something that happens when we talk about the series, or really, I think, you know, and any stories that evolves where we associate two story elements like this when maybe they're they're both being drawn to a different idea that they have in common. Like, I think, I think well before George has the specifics of the Martell characters in mind, I think he has this idea of the Targaryens and Danny specifically as having kind of an Icarus-like relationship to power. And they're going to mm. aim for the sun and be you know born again, but ultimately fall. And you see that theme repeated in a lot of different characters, but I think Danny's going to probably be the ultimate incarnation of it. And I think later as the story develops, he starts thinking about how the Martells are going to fit into that and how they're going to have their own little miniature versions of that arc. And you see that most strongly, I think, with Quentin, who kind of becomes the, the spear thrown at the sun, so to speak, when he tries to be all heroic at a dragon, and it does not work out at all. So I think... I think that's that's a theme George likes, and I think the Targaryens and the Martells are going to be brought together around it violently when it comes to young Grift. But I don't. But I. So I think that's that's just an idea George likes and draws from a lot. I don't think he had in mind when he wrote book one that the Targaryens and Martells specifically were going to come together on that. So I think hmm. so, I think sometimes we we take those symbolic links and we we leap immediately to this character is like this character or with this character when it's like well maybe. Maybe it's this it's just the same inspiration for both of these. Maybe it's the same kind of concept or move that George, George is going for. And maybe maybe the explicit plot link, as you say, maybe that he trusts he'll come up with that later. I think that's probably what's going on. I, I agree. And I and I think George loves his ambiguities in terms of his his storytelling and especially when it comes to prophecies. I mean he's he's talked mm-hmm. about that example of the the guy who who was told and, and prop, was prophesied that he would die at this castle. Right, and he, he's talked about this several times in, from the uh, from the Wars of the Roses, and so this man avoided the castle within for his entire life. He was supposed to die within sight of this castle, right? So he stayed far away from this castle, but he ended up dying at an inn where the sign was of the castle itself, and that was what the uh, the prophecy was supposed to mean. Uh, so he, so George loves his ambiguities with his his foreshadowing and his prophecies, and I think he has the ability to garden his way to a satisfying conclusion in his own mind. Whether it's a objectively satisfying conclusion is something that uh, I guess we're going to have to wait to see when we get to uh, those that greater unfolding of the Targaryen Dornish storyline. Probably, probably in the Winds Winter, definitely in a Dream of Spring. Agreed. Yeah, I think that uh, by the time you get to feast and dance, I think it's it's George's bringing Danny and the Dornish together pretty strongly, especially that when he's got a stronger idea of Young Grift. But uh, a lot of yeah, a lot of the the more mythological stuff in Book One, I think, is George just trying stuff out. And seeing if the imagery resonates with the characters, and then yeah, things get things get a lot more specific uh, later on. Which of course, you know, getting specific also means taking a lot more time to write it. Unfortunately, <laughs> as we also found out, because it's like oh, it's got to mean stuff now. It can't just like be, you know, vague and portentous. It has to be a thing. Damn it. Do- do, do you think like that's maybe one of the reasons why the Winds of Winter is taking so long? I mean, like if you think about it, like it's like George is like, oh, I actually have to like come to concrete ideas about these kind of vaguer notions. Like it's more fun to write like, oh, what does this mean? This prophecy seems very ambiguous. And now it's like, fuck, now I actually have to like define yeah. it out as much as possible. I don't know. For the, for the, I mean, we talk about, you know, inflated expect, about, you know, uh, our inflated expectations for the Winds of Winter, but imagine George's expectations for the Winds of Winter. Those are probably <laughs> way higher than ours, so he's got to live up to those. Imagine. Imagine. So thank you so much, Grizzly Adams, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we must answer here on the Not A Cast podcast. 
You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, bonus episodes, like our upcoming analysis of the movie Waltz with Bashir, and free merch, access to the Nata Slack, and more. Yes, indeed. And we are recording that Waltz with Bashir episode tomorrow, which looks like it's going to be one of our best patron episodes. I'm just putting that out there, folks. If you've never seen this movie, it's okay. You could just listen to the patron episodes, and that's all you really need to get out of this movie. No, you absolutely should see this movie. It is up on the Criterion channel if you're uh if you're pretentious like me if uh if you if you set up for the criterion channel is it is on there and i recommend they got like a a nice quality version of it so check it out there or it's available on streaming stuff i guess that's right if, if you're if, if you're a capitalist like me you could pay like 10 bucks for for waltz of bashir on amazon prime video nothing yes. nothing more socialist than the criterion company it's true <laughs> alas oh that's brilliant uh, so again, that episode I think is going to be really awesome, and I hope you folks can uh, tune in for that one. And we are creeping ever forward towards hitting our stretch goal of 1,050 total patrons, in which we'll do a full multi, 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 and a full multi-part analysis of Theon's The Winds of Winter chapter. So sign up today, or we will turn you over to the King's Justice, Sir Frank B. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Sansa, she had had a wonderful time observing Joffrey's victory, the one that he had won so brilliantly and beautifully at the Battle of the Blackwater with his new friends. Friends? The Tyrells. Let's find out how Sansa Stark is doing as she starts A Storm of Swords in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Sansa 1. The invitation seemed innocent enough, but every time, but every time Sansa read it, her tummy tightened into a knot. She's to be the queen now. She's beautiful and rich and everyone loves her. Why would she want to sup with a traitor's daughter? It could be curiosity, she supposed. Perhaps Marjorie Terrell wanted to get the measure of her the rival she displaced. Does she resent me, I wonder? Does she think I bear her ill will? In contrast to previous chapters, which started with someone starving to death and someone waking up without a nose, this is a positively cheery goddamn chapter opener. Sansa had witnessed the Tyrells enter King's Landing, watched as Joff played the gallant riding out to meet her to guide her into the city. The people cheered for Marjorie, showed her their children, and cheered for Marjorie some more. These being the same small folk who tried to murder Sansa if it hadn't been for smoke man meet himself Sander Clegane. What exactly had Sansa done to earn the small folk hate, she wonders? What had Marjorie done to earn their love? Does Marjorie want Sansa to love her now? Or maybe Joffrey knows and sent this as a cruel joke to her. And then the Kingsguard would beat her again. Tyrion had once saved her when that had happened. But now? No one can save me but my Florian. Sir Dantos had promised he would help her escape, but not until the night of Joffrey's wedding. The plans had been well laid. Her dear, devoted knight turned fool assured her. There was, nothing to, there was nothing to do until then but ensure, but endure and count the days. And sup with my replacement. Sansa considers that she was being too harsh with Marjorie. Marjorie was probably being kind, inviting her to dinner. But there was no simple kindness in the court of Joffrey. Forget it, Sansa. This is King's Landing. If there is one thing that Sansa Stark had learned here, it was mistrust. But Sansa can't refuse, especially as the discarded daughter and sister of, tra of traitors. She wishes Big McLarge Huge Clegane was still around, though. He had come to her on the night of the Blackwater, telling her he could take her away from the city, but Sansa refused. She kept his white cloak, though, dyeing it and then hiding it in her cedar closet. 
her cedar chest. She didn't know why she kept it, though, especially since everyone thought he was a coward and fled the battle. But he hadn't fled battle. He fled the green flames. Hmm, I wonder if anyone in this fandom has a theory on why Sansa kept that cloak. Does anyone have a theory out there? No? Oh, probably not important or worth reading. But Sansa had duties to attend to, so she writes a letter of acceptance for dinner. A few nights later, Sir Loras Tyrell arrives at Sansa's chambers to escort her to, escort her to dinner. And boy, Loras looks fine. Sansa comments as much, and Loras looks puzzled and returns the compliment. But now it's off to dinner with Marjorie and Grandma Tyrell. Wait, who? Grandma Tyrell? Why, it's Lady Olena Tyrell, knee Redwine. She'll be there at dinner. Oh, said Sansa. I am talking to him, and he's touching me. He's holding my arm and touching me. The Queen of Thorns, she's called. Isn't that right? It is, Sir Loras laughed. He had the warmest laugh, she thought, as he went on. Oh, you'd best not use that name in her presence, though, or you'll like to get pricked. Embarrassed, Sansa thinks that this was a major faux pas on her part. She's probably as dumb as Cersei says. Eh, Sansa, you're, you're not, I promise there. Anyways, she tries to figure out a way to get out of this faux pas. Maybe she should tell Loras how beautiful he was, but she had kind of already done that. Loras, though, was beautiful, tall, lithe, graceful, and those eyes. But he wasn't a boy. He was a man of the Kingsguard, all at white, save for the rose of high garden clasp around his cloak. Sansa and Loras arrive at Mager's Keep. Sir Balin Swan lets the two in, and they emerge into the practice yard where all sorts of crownlanders and reachmen practice for the war with blunted blades. They have scarcely finished burying the dead from their last battle, and already they are practicing for the next one. Sansa catches a man, a real man, practicing in the yard with Tyrell roses on his shields. She asks if it's Ebbett's dream man himself, Sir Garland Tyrell. Oof, I'm already getting the flutters in my belly too, and it surely is. She comments, she compliments him on how brave he is, and Loras says, yeah, Garland is a great knight and great with a sword, but Loras is so much better with a lance. Sansa knows about this. She did see him ride. Loras asks, uh, where Sansa saw him ride? At the hand's tourney, don't you remember? You rode a white courser and your armor was a hundred different kinds of flowers. You gave me a rose, a red rose. You threw white roses to the other girls that day. It made her flush to speak of it. You said no victory was half as beautiful as me. Sir Loras gave her a modest smile. I only spoke a simple truth that any man with eyes could see. He doesn't remember, Sansa realized startled. He is only being kind to me. He doesn't remember me or the rose or any of it. She had been so certain that it meant something, that it meant everything. A red prose, not a white. It, it, it was after you and Horse Sir Robert Royce, she said desperately. Well, boy, Sansa, you are touching a live wire here because Loras immediately removes his arm and sadly tells Sansa that he killed Sir Robar, Sir Robar at Storm's End. Sansa knows this story, having heard it from the other women at the well. She comments that this was when Renly died. It must have been terrible for Marjorie, right? For, for Marjorie? His voice was tight. To be sure, she, she was at Bitterbridge, though. She did not see. Even so, when she heard, Sir Loras brushed the hilt of his sword lightly with his hand. Its grip was white leather, its pomola rose and alabaster. Renly's dead. Robar as well. What used to speak of them? Sansa is taken aback, and she tries to apologize. Loras, though, stiffly apologizes in return, but he's someplace not with Sansa right now, and he does not touch her again as they ascend the stairs in silence. As they climb, Sansa kicks herself for mentoring Robar, but she decides not to apologize or really to say anything else to Sir Loras Tyrell. 
They arrive at where the Tyrells are housed, the Bane Vault, where Baylor the Blessed had kept his sisters locked away to prevent him from being tempted by them. They arrive in front of two seven-foot guards known as Eric or Arik, or left, in quotation marks, and right, according to Elena, who cannot tell them apart. The guards let Sansa and Marjorie into the room, and Sansa is immediately greeted by Marjorie. She kneels at the future queen's feet, calling Marjorie, Your Grace. But Marjorie just wants to be called Marjorie. Okay, can Marjorie call Sansa Sansa? Sansa guesses that she can. With those initial pleasantries out of the way, Marjorie directs Sansa to her grandmother. They pass by women Sansa mostly doesn't recognize, save for Lady Allery Hightower, Marjorie's mom, and Mace Terrell's wife. Marjorie does the introductions to her cousins, her aunt Jenna, her sister-in-law Leonette Fossaway, a Septa, a Lady Graceford, plump, jolly Meredith Crane, and that dark, sultry beauty Lady, Mer- Lady Merriweather, who may be important later on. Who knows? Who knows of such things? But finally, there's Lady Elena Terrell, widow to Luther Terrell. Sansa notes that Elena smells like roses and thinks there's nothing thorny about her. Until Olena Terrell opens her mouth. Kiss me, child, Lady Olena said, tugging at Sansa's wrist with a soft spot at him. It is so kind of you to sup with me and my foolish flock of hens. Dutifully, Sansa kissed the old woman on the cheek. It's kind that you have me here, my lady. I knew your grandfather, Lord Rickard, though not well. He died before I was born. I am aware of that child. It's sad. It's said that your Tully grandfather is dying too, Lord Hoster. Surely they told you. An old man, though, not so old as me. Still, night falls for us all in the end, and too soon for some. You would know that more than most, poor child. You've had your share of grief, I know. We are sorry for your losses. Not really being sure what to say to this Queen of Thorns, Sansa says that she was sad when Renly died. Marjorie says that's kind of Sansa. Olena has another thought on the matter. Her grandmother, her grandmother snorted, Callan, yes, charming and very clean. He knew how to dress, and he knew how to smile, and he knew how to bathe, and somehow he got the notion that made him fit to be king. The Baratheons have always had some queer notions, to be sure. It comes from the Targaryen blood, I should think, she sniffed. They tried to marry me to a Targaryen once, but I soon put an end to that. Renly was brave and gentle, grandmother, said Marjorie. Father liked him as well, and so did Loras. Loris is young, Lady Olenna said crisply, and very good at knocking men off horses with a stick. That does not make him wise. As to your father, would that I had been born a peasant woman with a big wooden spoon, that I might have been able to beat some sense into his fat head. Allery scolds Elena for being absolutely correct at everything so far, but Elena ain't having that shit. She's the smart one here, and she's so much smarter than her dumbass fucking son. It's treason. I warn them, Robert has two sons and Renly has an older brother. How could he possibly have any claim to that ugly iron chair? Tut, tut, says my son. Don't you want your sweetling to be queen? You stocks were kings once, the Arons and Lannisters as well, and even the Baratheons through the female line. But the Tyrells were no more than stewards until Aegon the Dragon came along and cooked the rightful king of the Reach on the field of fire. If truth be told, even our claim to Highgarden is a bit dodgy, just as those dreadful Tyrells are always whining about. What does it matter, you ask? And of course it doesn't, except to oafs like my son. She thought that one day he may see his grandson with his arse on the iron throne. At big space, pay up like a... Oh, now, now, what do you call it, Marjorie? Marjorie, you're so clever. Be a dear and tell your poor old half-deft mother, grandmother the name of that queer fish from the Summer Isles that puffs up a few ten times its own size when you poke it. They call them puff fish, grandmother. <laughs> 
course they do. Summer Islanders have no imagination. My son ought to take the pufffish for a sigil, if truth be told. He could put a crowd on it the way the Baratheons do their stag. Mayhaps that would make him happy. We should have stayed well out of this bloody foolishness, if you ask me. Once the cow has been milked, there's no squirting the cream back up into her udder. After Lord Puffish put that crown on Renly's head, we were into the pudding up to our knees. So here we are to see things through. And what do you say to that, Sansa? Can I just, I mean, can I just quote Olena for the rest of the synopsis? I, I, I mean, I'm not going to do any better than what George does here in synopsizing here. Alas, I won't, I promise, because this synopsis will go for another hour if I did that. We're only like halfway through the chapter. Sansa comments that the Tyrells are descendants of Garth Greenham. Olena says, yeah, so is everyone else in the Reach. Garth planted his seed everywhere. Really, it wasn't Garth's hands that were green. If you catch her penis drift, her penis drift. At that, Lady Allery interrupts, desperate to keep her mother-in-law from taking from talking more about dicks. She asks if Sansa is hungry. Some boar or lemon cakes, perhaps? Sure, Sansa loves lemon cakes. Olena knows this and reveals that Varys told this told her this, commenting that Varys is a eunuch, and that doesn't mean he has a and that means he doesn't have a dick. Anyways, can you tell how interesting Olena is, Sansa? Does Sansa like fools? Uh yes, they wear motley. Feathers in this case. What did you imagine I was speaking of? My son or these lovely ladies? No, no, don't blush with your hair. It makes you look like a pomegranate. All men are fools, if truth be told, but the ones in Motley are more amusing than the ones with crowns. Marjorie, child, summon Butterbumps. Let us see if you can't make Lady Sansa smile. The rest of you be seated. Do I have to tell you everything? Sansa must think my granddaughter is attended by a flock of sheep. <laughs> Sputterbump shows up and breaks into a routine involving yellow chicks and putting them into her mouth, spitting out feathers. Really, what this communicates is how fucking wild this whole scene is and how much fun George had writing it. While Butterbumps performs, Olena asks if Sansa knows about her son Mace. Of course Sansa does. He's a great lord. A great oaf, said the Queen of Thorns. Her his father was an oaf as well. My husband, the late Lord Luther. Oh, I loved him well enough, don't mistake me. A kind man and not unskilled in the bedchamber, but an appalling oaf all the same. He managed to ride off a cliff whilst hawking. They say he was looking up at the sky and paying no mind to where his horse was taking him. And now my oaf son is doing the same, only he's riding a lion instead of a palfrey. It is easy to mount a lion, and not so easy to get off. I warned him, but he only chuckles. Should you ever have a son, Sansa, beat him frequently so he learns to find you? I only had the one boy, and I hardly beat him at all. So now he pays more heed to Butterbumps than he does to me. A lion is not a lap cat, I told him, and he gives me a tut-tut, mother. There is entirely too much tut-tutting in this room, if you ask me. And these kings would do a deal better if they could put down their swords and listen to their mothers. Okay, ignoring the part where I'm failing not to quote Olena in full for a moment, Sansa realizes that her mouth is open and she fills her open mouth with broth. But hey, Sansa, Olena wants to know about Joffrey. What's he like? Is he cool? They've heard some things. Uh, he's um, super handsome and brave, like a lion. Yeah, but, but fuck that sigil noise, Elena says. Is he kind, smart, gentle, chivalrous? Will he treat Marjorie well? Absolutely, he's so handsome. Olena chides Sansa for repeating herself and says that maybe Sansa is as dumb as everyone says. Anyways, being hot isn't the best. Arian Brightflame was a hottie, and he was a fucking monster. Anyways, is that how Joffrey is? Oh, and Olena wants cheese. No, no, not yesterday, not five minutes ago, right fucking now. Back to Sansa. Is she scared of telling the truth? Um, maybe. She did watch her dad get executed for telling the truth. 
Lord Eddard, yes, he had that reputation, but they named him traitor and took his head off even so. The old woman's eyes bore into her, sharp and bright as the points of sword. Joffrey, Sansa said. Joffrey did that. He promised me that he would be merciful and cut my father's head off. He said that was mercy, and he took me up on the walls and made me look at it. The head. He wanted me to weep, but she stopped abruptly and covered her mouth. I've said too much. Oh, gods, be good. They'll know. They'll hear. Someone will tell on me. This time, it's Marjorie who pops in to tell her to go on. Sansa says that she can't and starts saying party lines about how Ned and Robert are traitors. They're absolutely traitors. And she has the traitor's blood, too. She doesn't want to say anything more. She doesn't want to go on. Olena tells her to snap the fuck out of it. But Marjorie points out that Sansa is scared shitless. So Olena orders Butterbump to sing the bear and the maiden fair. Should Butterbump do this while he's standing on his head? No, just fucking sing. There was. Just fucking sing, bro. Ah. A bear there was, a bear, a bear, all black and brown and covered with hair. I'm sorry, as much as the Throne show has some faults to it, the way they brought that punk rock cover of The Bear and the Maiden Fair was just amazing. Just had to do an homage to it. And for you folks who are listening, our, our friends at in the Manimals did an excellent cover of that. And our friend Haley sang a brilliant version of it. So uh, please check that out on their Instagram and YouTube and all the places where you can find their music. And also, come on, folks, you know I had to be. It's a singing part in A Song of Ice and Fire, and you know I have to sing. Anyways, Olena says that the walls have ears, and now it's time for us girls to talk freely while Butterbump sings. And damn, Butterbump sing. Don't want Varus hearing about what Sansa is saying. The bear, the bear, all black and brown and covered with hair, thundered Butterbump's his great deep voice echoing off the rafters. Olena says there are plenty of spiders in the flowers, but they crush them if they get underfoot. Now, about Joffrey, what's he like again? A monster, Sansa whispered. So tremulously, she could scarcely hear her own voice. Joffrey is a monster. He lied about the butcher's boy and made father kill my wolf. When I displease him, he has the king's guard beat me. He's evil and cruel, my lady, it's so, and the queen as well. Lady Olena Terrell and her granddaughter exchanged a look. Ah, said the old woman. Well, that's a pity. Horrified, Sansa wonders if they're going to keep the wedding going. Um, yeah, they are. Mace Terrell is determined, and his word was good. No, better than casterly rock gold. But hey, Sansa, what would you think about visiting Highgarden? It's lovely in the fall these days, and Sansa would have so much fun out there riding on horses and boats. And maybe Sansa could hawk too? Uh, okay, um, maybe. Yes, absolutely. Sansa would love to come, but she can't. She's far too busy now being held hostage by Cersei and such. Why are you asking? Because they want to take Sansa away to Highgarden. Why? To see you safely wed, child, the old woman said as Butterbumps bellowed out the old song. To my grandson. What, Sir Loras? Oh, Sansa's breath caught in her throat. She remembered Sir Loras in his sparkling sapphire armor, tossing her a rose. Sir Loras in white silk, so pure, innocent, beautiful. The dimples at the corner of his mouth when he smiled, the sweetness of his laugh, the warmth of his hands. She could only imagine what it would be like to pull up his tunic and caress the smooth skin underneath, to stand on her toes and kiss him, to run her fingers through those thick brown curls and drown in those deep brown eyes. A flush crept up her neck. As Butterbumps continues to sing, a bear, a bear, all black and brown and covered with hair, Marjorie asks if it will please Sansa, and it absolutely would. She loved to marry Loras. What? 
fuck, no, Loris, no, no, no. They meant Willis. He's an older dude, but he's kind and smart, unlike his dad, Mace. Sansa felt dizzy. One instant where her head was full of dreams of Loris, and the next they'd all been snatched away. Willis? Willis? I... She said stupidly. Courtesy is a lady's armor. You must not offend them. Be careful what you say. I, I, I do not know, Sir Willis. I, I have never had the pleasure, my lady. Is he... Is he a great knight as his brothers? No. In fact, he is somewhat paralyzed in one leg anyhow. Given that he was injured in a tourney tilting against Prince Oberyn Martell when his horse fell on him. But he has a good heart. Sansa is a bit dazed by all of this and asks when she'll meet Willis. Soon, when she comes to Highgarden, Olena will take them. And I don't, I don't think this version was in the, the version from the Manimals, so I'll just say this part. But then she sighed and squealed and knocked and kicked the air. By bear, my bear, she sang. My bear so fair, and off they went from here to there, the bear, the bear, and the maiden fair. Butterbumps roared the last line, it leapt into the air, and came down on both feet with a crash that shook the wine cups on the table. The women laughed and clapped. <laughs> I thought that dreadful song would never end, said, said the Queen of Thorns. But look, here comes my cheese. Ah, oh, that synopsis was so much fun. And that is the synopsis to A Storm of Swords, Sansa Juan. Ah, oh, I said it was so much fun, but what a terrible chapter, right? Wrong, holy shit. I've been waiting for this Sansa chapter for years now. It's a great, great chapter. What did you think, sir? Well, I think the Manimals and even the Hold Steady have been defeated. The definitive version of the Bear and the Maiden Fair <laughs> now belongs to Brendan Beefish. I said it, mm. so it's law. So Sansa's story in Clash of Kings was about life in captivity. She was confined to the castle, and the only time she stepped outside, she almost got killed. Sansa had to play a role, look the part of a proper noble lady, even as the individuals and institutions around her failed to live up to their own roles. It was an ironic fate for the little girl who wanted to be queen. Here she is in fine fabrics, eating expensive food off fancy plates, sitting beside the king. But the king is a monster, and she would have given anything to get away from him. Her only freedom was in her head, her thoughts shared with us in her POV chapters. There was no other escape. Sansa's story in Storm of Swords is about escape. Or is it? <laughs> what it's really about is the illusion of escape. Sansa gets out of one cage only to find another, and another, and another. She thinks she'll marry Loras, only to be told, nah, you're going to marry Willis. Then she has to marry Tyrion instead. Then she gets out of the city, only to fall into Littlefinger's clutches. Even when she reunites with family in the Eyrie, it's only another prison. This opening chapter sets the stage perfectly. The Tyrells tempt Sansa with the promise of family and safety, but they're only using her to gain advantage in the Game of Thrones. Sansa can't rely on any external force to liberate her. Ultimately, she can only liberate herself. Brilliant way of putting it. And there is no better character who demonstrates growth than Sansa Stark. She starts where I imagine most 11-year-old girls, and boys, if I remember my boyhood correctly, start with fantasies of what it will mean to be an adult and how wonderful it will be, it will be when all of her dreams are fulfilled. A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings dispelled much of these fantasies that Sansa had grown up with. But again, as we were saying in those episodes, there is something real and noble at the core of those girlhood fantasies. Sansa's arc is, is about as one former first sergeant of mine used to say, hunting the good. Storm starts to show us a wiser Sansa, and her growth starts to explode here. 
From a meta perspective, the reason why this is the case is that George may have been inspired by knowing that he was going to have a five-year gap between Storm and Dance, knowing he wanted to leave Sansa as a much more mature character so, then we, so that when we pick up with her after five years, her turning of the wing and nuggets and seduction of Harry the heir would seem like the, the natural outgrowth of all of that character growth Sansa had in A Storm of Swords. And that growth picks up here with Sansa objectively, with Sansa's objectively correct observations of being the incoming Tyrells and the lessons she learns at their table. I think it's it's always interesting as we go through Sansa chapters to think about the writing process as you were bringing up and to compare where she is as a character to where she was gonna be in the initial pitch letter for the story. Originally, Sansa was supposed to abandon her family for the Lannisters in order to bear Joffrey's children. As George rewrote her character, he wound up using her previous incarnation as kind of a counterpoint to her growth. Sansa is always reacting to the person she was, the person she could have been long term. She keeps being put in situations to which the original Sansa would respond positively. So we can see how she's changing in her reactions. Like when she gets this invitation from Marjorie and she thinks... Perhaps she was doing Marjorie Tyrell an injustice. Perhaps the invitation was no more than a simple kindness and act of courtesy. It might be just a supper. But this was the Red Keep. This was King's Landing. This was the court of King Joffrey Baratheon, first of his name. And if there was one thing that Sansa Stark had learned here, it was mistrust. And that basically summarizes Sansa's arc so far. You know, if you're just tuning in, this is what Sansa's story has been about. <laughs> First book Sansa. Pitch letter Sansa. She would have been overjoyed at this invitation. Remember how happy she was just to eat with Cersei? She was lost in a world of surfaces and projections. Now, it's not so much that these images have lost their appeal for Sansa. As we'll see with Loras, the image is still very appealing to her. It's more that she's beginning to realize that images is all they are. Shadows on a wall, given meaning by the audience. So I don't think the point is even like the world actually sucks. I think it's more that the world is actually unknowable, and we tell stories to deal with that. Sansa thinks that this invitation could be a challenge, or an olive branch, or a threat, or exactly as it appears. (laughs) So what it is for sure is a mystery. In Tyrion 1, we learned that Marjorie Tyrell was on her way to King's Landing. Now she has arrived. She's treated like a goddess, people holding their children up for blessings, scattering flower petals before her. She is all image, a fantasy of innocent power. She is here to give you something to believe in. Who is Marjorie on the inside? We won't find that out until the last time we see her in the story so far, when she's imprisoned by the faith in a feast for crows and tells Cersei to fuck off and die. Here, she's part of the Tyrell spectacle. The roses on the wheelhouse, gilded and shining, as George describes them, like George, like Joffrey's armor, beauty that is only skin deep. I think you're, I think you're absolutely correct that the Tyrells are showing that they're beautiful, wonderful people through image, and that ultimately, ultimately, that beauty is a hollow, uh, is a hollow beauty. But goddamn, are they playing? Are they not playing the Game of Thrones in Westeros so much better than anyone and than anyone else? And I'm including the Starks in this equation here. We talked about this in our Patreon, on our Patreon episode, wonderfully titled by Emmett, Every Rose Has Its Thorns, but you start to see how the Tyrells are stepping into the role of a lifetime with a plume here in this chapter. They enshrine the very entrance of their future queen in the most haloed of chivalric optics. King Joffrey doesn't wait for Sansa in the Red Keep. He rides out on his magnificent steed to the gates of King's Landing to meet his queen and escorts her into the Red Keep. 
All along the way, the people throw flowers in front of Marjorie. Were those flower throwers astroturf? Were they some of Varys' agents? Were they genuine? I don't know, and in the end, it doesn't actually matter, because what it does is that it creates a sense that chivalry and goodness are returning to King's Landing. And they get a parade going to welcome Marjorie into the city. It's really fabulous optics and shows the Tyrells as particularly excellent players in the Game of Thrones. And they had to be good players in the game, as we'll find out later in later conversations with Elena. Their claim to High Garden was a bit dodgy. So they played up their role as the nicest of the nice, the cream of the chivalry, and they used their soft power to secure their hold on power for 300 years. For the 300 years since Harlan Tyrell, steward of High Garden, was named Lord Harlan Tyrell, Lord Paramount of the Reach, and Warden of the South. But in thinking through the entry of the Tyrells, I think we should kind of contrast this to the Stark arrival in King's Landing from the first book, A Game of Thrones. Now, I love our father Ned Stark, I truly do, and I think he was dealt a really shitty hand in arriving in King's Landing in a piss-poor mood having killed Sansa's wolf lady. Ned rolled into town and just immediately got into work. Yes, it was important work trying to right the kingdom's finances and determine who killed Jon Arryn, which, you know, thinking about those finances, though, harkening back to Game of Thrones, he did not end up writing in the end. Even the hand's tourney, which Robert intended as a celebration of naming Ned as Han, was something Ned wanted no part in, not even showing up for the first day, if you remember that from A Game of Thrones. Sansa was there. And at the very end, the small folk of King's Landing cheered Ned's death on the steps of Baylor's Sept. When Marjorie was arrested in A Feast for Crows, crowds showed up protesting her imprisonment. Again, I think it's not intended to be a one-for-one, look at the Starks and they're still so fucking dumb, and look at the Tyrells and they're so fucking smart. But I do think there is a bit of an intentional contrast that George is writing into A Song of Ice and Fire. Ned Stark never won the love of the commons. And while that ranks rather low in the mistakes he made, it was still a mistake. One the Tyrells will not repeat as Sansa observes. Yeah, observes is the key word for Sansa because she's in this kind of, this a slight remove still, almost in an audience perspective. She's watching Marjorie arrive in the city from afar, representing her growing distance from everything that image represents. And Sansa thinks about how the same small folk cheering Marjorie tried to kill her. But there's no real resentment there. Instead, Sansa recognizes that the distinction between her and Marjorie is essentially arbitrary. It has nothing to do with who they are or what they've done. Sansa didn't make those people hate her any more than Marjorie made them love her. Politics is about signs and symbols, more than hard facts. The Game of Thrones can bury violence, but it can't erase it. Joffrey is a source of permanent anxiety for Sansa. She thought she had escaped him at the end of Clash of Kings when their betrothal was broken. Sir Dantos told her otherwise. He can still hurt you. The specter of violence hovers over all these shell games for Sansa. There could be terrible consequences for her if she misreads the signals. So part of her wishes Sandor Clegane was here instead of Dantos, her other not-a-knight. Sandor was frightening, but he seemed to understand violence. Sansa hears the rumors of Sandor turning craven, but she knows better. It was only the fire he feared, his traumatic return to childhood before he was the Hound. And now that fearsome reputation has fallen away. Sansa keeps his stained white cloak beneath her summer silks. It's bittersweet romance, a metaphor for the collision of image and reality. There is surely a relationship between what is false and what is real, because where else do false things come from except reality? But what that relationship actually is, that's too complicated for us to ever figure out. Our intellectual and spiritual tools aren't up to the job. 
You can see that play out with Sansa in the opening scene of this chapter. She brings far more analysis to bear than she would have before, and she reaches some correct conclusions, but they don't actually help her. In the end, she does exactly what Pitchletter Sansa would have done. She accepts the invitation from the queen-to-be. But she does it knowing that it's all pretense. Instead of seeing herself and her role as identical, she recognizes the gap. And that's why I don't think Sansa is quite as passive a character as her reputation suggests. She is in a position where her decisions can't really change her environment. That's not incidental, though. That's the subject of her chapters. This is a storyline about agency, about how, about how you can be aware that your actions are not genuine and yet still have to perform them. As she thinks, she was nothing now, the discarded daughter of a traitor and disgraced sister of a rebel lord. She could scarcely refuse Joffrey's queen to be. By the time you get to Winds of Winter, her released chapter from Winds, Sansa is having more of an intentional impact on the world around her, but I think people annoy that it's not more of a straightforward empowerment narrative might be overlooking how deliberately George is frustrating her expectations as well as ours. I think that's that's so well said that George is deliberately frustrating both the reader's expectations and ours because that's the dynamic that George wants to write into A Song of Ice Fire. When they talk about George being this kind of twisty author, I think the the and, and subverting expectations, the the point of those conversations is a is, it, they, it tends to be a little bit kind of surface level, but I think in George's writing it becomes a little bit more deep and impactful because ultimately what the end of the scene really brings home is how Sansa is starting to evaluate the world correctly. And that is part of that, that subversion at work here. She doesn't really have a choice in refusing the invitation. It's not really an invitation, as Sansa realizes. It's basically an order. Mm-hmm. Sansa has no choice but to appear in front of Joffrey at the battle of Ox, after the Battle of Oxcross, where the Kingsguard beat her. And she wasn't physically carried there by Sandra Clegane back in A Clash of Kings, but it has the same effect. A lot of that dynamic, as you put so well, is how George is frustrating our expectations and how Sansa should act. We want her to strike back against her oppressors to tell them that she's not putting up with their shit anymore. Because in a way, we want Sansa to be a character in those lesser fantasies that George has always criticized, those lesser knockoff Tolkien stories. Readers want Sansa to be the feisty peasant girl spitting straight fire at her oppressors because that's what fantasy characters do, right? That's not what real-life people do, though. Real-life people follow orders of the powerful because they don't have a choice and they want to live for another day. Real-life people have to try to breathe another breath, eat another bite of food, drink another glass of water. And the best way to keep breathing and eating and drinking is to accept the invitation, in quotation marks, and hope Joffrey isn't on the other end of it. And we've seen with Sandor what the consequences of rebelling looks like. I mean, all he did was steal his brother's toy, and he suffered in the worst way imaginable for it. Hmm. And George didn't bring up Sandor just so we have him in mind when he shows up again in Arya chapters. It was also to contrast him with Loras Tyrell. Like his sister, Loras looks like he stepped down off a stained glass window. He's a scrupulously perfect recreation of the knights from the songs. He's handsome, gentle, well-spoken. Everything Sansa had hoped, and assumed, Joffrey would be. It's hard to reconcile how perfect Loras looks in, this, in his Kingsguard cloak, with the stained cloak of the man he replaced. As with the invitation, there is a script to be followed here, and neither Loras nor Sansa play their roles perfectly, albeit for different reasons. Sansa's just too into Loras to keep her head together, and that says something about the role she's playing. The beautiful maiden is supposed to be infatuated, 
But infatuation actually makes it difficult, as Sansa thinks, to walk and talk and think all at the same time. Sansa would be having an easier time of it if this really was all a performance for her. If she could just feign attraction to Loras. Instead, she's caught in a situation where uh, desperately she tried to think of something clever and charming to say to him, but her wits had deserted her. She almost told him how beautiful she w- how beautiful he was until she remembered she'd already done that. And Loras picks up on this, offering a puzzled smile when Sansa calls him lovely. He doesn't get why she's so into him, because he doesn't remember their interaction at the hands tourney in book one. That was the moment the stories came true for Sansa Stark, right? The handsome knight singled her out of the crowd, giving her not a white rose like the other chosen ones, but a red rose, symbolizing romantic love, and also the onset of puberty, which Sansa experienced in book two. That felt like her coming of age, but maybe this chapter is really where she comes of age, when she learns it meant nothing to him at all. All Loras was doing was following the script, just like he's doing now. Chivalry dictates he give a maiden something pretty and say nice things, just as chivalry dictates he give her a manly escort to meet with his family. There's an extra layer to his performance that Sansa doesn't know about, but the reader probably does by now. Loras is gay. So it's not Sansa. Loras isn't interested in any charming maiden as the knights are supposed to be. Unlike the show, we're given to believe that really nobody cares that Loras is gay. He's a third son. Who cares what he does? Same reason it's okay for him to join the Kingsguard. He can do what he wants, as long as he keeps up the image. So in public, he has to perform straight, and giving a rose to Sansa was part of that. It wasn't memorable or special for him. It was him acting like the person he's not, the person he's supposed to be. Like I said, what interrupts all these performed narratives is violence, and even more so, death. An immovable object, the final curtain. Sansa winces, Sansa winces at all the knights training in the yard. Will the next battle come so soon? Sansa brings up Loras unhorsing Robar Royce because to her, Robar Royce is just part of the story of the tourney. He's just a supporting character in the best day of her life. But that's not what he means to Loras. Their play violence turned all too real in the south. Loras killed Robar, his own brother in arms, the rainbow guard with all their beautiful heraldry, and that's what happened. Makes me think about Sandor's line later in this book. A knight's a sword with a horse. The rest, the vows and the sacred oils and the ladies' favors. They're silk ribbons tied round the sword. Maybe the sword's prettier with ribbons hanging off of it, but it will kill you just as dead. And this clearly haunts Loras, though not nearly as much as the death of Renly, which drove him to it. Renly, of course, was Loras' true romance. Sansa doesn't know that. According to her script, Marjorie is the one she should feel sorry for because Marjorie was Renly's lady wife. Same reason Marjorie herself told Catelyn how sorry we all are about your loss of Ned. But in this case, the real relationship doesn't match the public image. Sansa is unknowingly putting salt in Loras's wounds. It's bad enough to mourn the love of your life. It's even worse to have to pretend that's not who he was. It seems an insult to Renly's memory to act as though Marjorie grieved for him the most. She wasn't even there. (laughs) When Loras snaps that Renly and Robar are dead, and it does no good to speak of them, what he's really saying is that he thinks about them all the time, from waking to sleep, and to speak of them would break his performance. Sansa apologizes, but the damage is done. The tone has shifted. Once you see the puppet strings behind social interactions... You can never accept the illusion as easily. 
You're right. And I think this scene is so wonderfully wrought because it's two damaged mirrors speaking at each other. Mm. Sansa was supposed to be the beautiful queen-to-be, beloved of the songs and stories of chivalry, knights in shining armor, and rescuing beautiful maidens. And the image we get of Loras, or the impression rather we get of Loras, is one where he was very much in love with the same songs and stories. Even if Loras was not all chivalry, as we discovered during the hands turning where he cheated to win the tilt against Gregor Clegane, there was a romance to him. In a way he had, in the way he adorned himself and carried himself in the lists, and and I don't think Loras was mere performance and mere image. There's a strong part of me that believes that Loras at one point wanted the real thing. When Jamie will later think that he's talking to a younger version of himself when they interact towards the end of Storm, it's a signal that Loras had the same dreams of chivalry knighthood that animated Jamie's early life story. But like Sansa, Loras has experienced horror. In his case, he killed a fellow brother, a member of the Rainbow Guard, Sir Robar Royce. For the moment, Loris believes that his killing of Robar Royce is justified, that he played a part in murdering the love of his life Renly, that is that Robar played a part. But even in this justified context, Loris shedding blood fills the young knight with sorrow. It will become much harder when Loris starts to believe Brienne's story towards the end of Storm. Still, the sorrow Loris feels pales in comparison to the loss he experienced when Renly was kill, died peacefully in sleep, whatever it was. But like Sansa in A Clash of Kings, where she had to play the part of feeling sad when Joffrey set her aside, Loras has to play the part of being only sad that his very hetero king died. That Loras and Renly were in love, or that Loras loved Renly, is something that has to be concealed. Loras has to play a part, but it doesn't take much for Sansa to accidentally crack that facade. Ultimately, Loras is still a teenager. He's still got feelings and he can't bury his, bury, he can't bury his feelings under pretense, especially when he's intent, unintentionally poked hard about it. That's a great point. Well, Loras is, you know, certainly significantly older than Sansa in terms of his overall development. I think he's still a child in a lot of ways. That was emphasized when Catelyn saw him right at the tourney after Brienne kicked his ass and saw, saw the Night of Flowers for the first time and was like, oh, you're a, you're a kid. <laughs> and uh, that's quite in contrast to uh, the the main character of this chapter, who's been around quite a while and uh, has earned the right to tell you all about it. And this chapter mm-hmm. builds up to the introduction, of course, of Olena Tyrell, the Queen of Thorns, just as Tyrion won built up to the reintroduction of Tywin. These are the winners of the Battle of Blackwater, what Littlefinger calls the Great Western Alliance, what Kevon calls One Great House. Yet we'll begin to learn in this chapter that their interests don't always line up. And even before that, we see how they work differently as politicians. For all that Tywin glitters like the sun with all his gold, he gives off no more warmth than Stannis. No one smiles around Tywin. No one laughs. Because that would be too much like Tytos. So everything has to be grim, martial, masculine, a brutalist aesthetic. Sansa 1 flips it all around to show us how Olena operates. In many ways, this chapter is a sequel to Clash of Kings Catelyn 2, which was that big Catelyn chapter down at Renly's camp in the Reach with the, with the tourney with Brienne and everything else down there. That's when we first got acquainted with the Reach style of politics, which is built on overwhelming everyone with displays of wealth and beauty. And this chapter has a similar shock and awe approach to the imagery. Everyone's wearing bright clothes and everyone's eyes are shining eagerly. But Catelyn in the South, she was crashing the party. Sansa is an invited guest. They are prepared to handle her. The other major difference is that Olena herself was not on the march with Renly. Now we meet the ultimate Reach politician. George tells us that Lord Mace Tyrell and his entourage are housed in the Maiden Vault, but it really feels more like Olena's court, which is fitting. (laughs) 
The Maiden Vault, after all, is where Baylor the Blessed imprisoned his sisters, lest they tempt him with their sinful, womanly ways and all that nonsense. So it's a testament to those like Sansa who have had to endure sharp limitations on their freedom. Joffrey dealt with his temptations by having Sansa beaten in public. Baylor didn't spill his sister's blood, but locking them away is still violent. Hosting Marjorie in the Maiden Vault sends a message that she's holding up the ideal of maidenly purity, but it's also a reminder that she only accesses power through men, and her grandmother knows all about that. In a way, Olena has been holding court from the Maiden Vault her whole life, influencing events from within her cage, wielding power however she can. The first thing we learn about her is her nickname, the Queen of Thorns. That's what Laura says. Yeah, yeah don't call her that to her face, though. <laughs> no one calls her that to her face. So she's prickly and proud, commanding thorns beneath the beautiful roses, the hard power of Highgarden that goes hand in hand with the soft power. The second thing we learn about Olena is that she has two twin guardsmen, Eric with an E and Eric with an A, but she calls them left and right. She claims it's because she can't keep track, but as Littlefinger will tell Sansa, Olena is not nearly as frail as she pretends to be. It's a power play, and it's specifically a power play on two tall, strapping warrior dudes, asserting that she, the tiny old lady, is in charge of them. Right, and you know, it's a much more effective power play than Tywin having Gregor Clegane in his back pocket and Amory Lorch as well, hmm. if you think about it. Because Tywin would have a monster in his service. He's Tywin after all. He's Tywin Lannister after all, and he's a fucking monster himself. But Elena, but Elena having these Eric and Eric as guards is intentionally jarring. How could such a wisp of a woman command the respect of these seven-foot-tall giants? Partially, the reason is that Lord Mace Tyrell pays them as they seem part of his personal retinue. But the message communicated by their presence here is that they're here as further emphasis on the shadow of a wall. Ding! But you don't, because you don't leave your best assets protected by small, weak men. You get the big dudes to do that sort of job. Olena Terrell needs the biggest, strongest men protecting her because she is the most important figure in House Terrell, according to her. And I think, objectively, she is the most important figure in House Terrell. I, I have this picture of Elena browbeating her son Mace over this, instructing him to have these guys as a personal guard. Like, no, no, Mace. These guys, they belong to me. They do not guard you. They guard me because I'm important. Because that's her projecting her own power through these big boys. And it's an effective communication of power of where power it's an effective communication of where power and house Terrell truly lies. And you can just George does such a great job of making you feel that power just in the atmosphere of the room. Like, once Sansa steps inside the Maiden Vault, men like that, the big men who fight the wars and run the world, they vanish. All men vanish, save Butterbumps the Fool. Sansa steps inside a world of women. Young and old, thin and fat, natives of Westeros and Essos alike. The world she has never experienced. As we'll see more in her next chapter, this seems to be what she's been looking for. A place where she can relax among friends, speak her mind, and finally get some honest enjoyment out of life again. And that is rooted in gender. Everything would be so much more tense if, you know, Mace was in the room. She would not be able to feel at home here. Unfortunately for Sansa, the escape from performances turns out to be just another performance. The Tyrells are not her friends, as she will find out in her third chapter in this book. This is not a safe space. It's a web and Olena is the spider. She benefits from making Sansa think otherwise, as she has been her whole career. She wants you to think she's harmless, frail, just a grandma, look at her. 
That <laughs> assumption makes people careless and leads them to make mistakes that she can seize upon. By the time they realize it, they're getting pricked by the thorns. Olena has mastered the art of playing her role. She has mastered it so well that it doesn't even seem like a role, just her genuine personality. She's such a fun character, of course. All her dialogue is so just witty and barbed and it makes you giggle. It's, <laughs> it's so enjoyable to read. She's a breath of fresh air because it feels so spontaneous. But when you go back, you can see that every word she says is calculated. A series of misdirections leading to her goal. Olena thanks Sansa for attending her and her flock of foolish hens, making it seem as though Sansa is doing them a favor, which conveniently gets around the question of what it is they want from her. It may seem like Olena's being modest, but you might notice she never includes herself in her insults. It's always the other women in the room who are the hens or the sheep or whatever farm animal. And there is a hint here of Cersei's contempt for other women that we saw at the Blackwater, but Olena holds a room together far better than Cersei. People trust her more and are more relaxed in her presence than Cersei. Why is that? Some of it has to do with Joanna's death. She never taught Cersei how to run a room. Some of it has to do with Tywin failing to teach his children. I also think Cersei is just profoundly incurious about other human beings, which gets in her way. <laughs> Olena, by contrast, I can imagine as an obnoxiously curious child. You know, always running around demanding explanations of how things worked. And so she became an expert in intelligence, gathering information and wielding it politically to the benefit of House Tyrell. Remember that scene in Feast for Crows when Cersei and her entire council can't remember Theon's name? That would never happen to the Queen of Thorns. As soon as Sansa sits down, Elena's pointing at her like, okay, who are you? Where are you from? Who? She's establishing where Sansa is in the great family tree of the Game of Thrones. She brings up, uh, Olena, she, Olena brings up Sansa's grandfather, the Stark grandfather, Lord Rickard. And she brings him up for the same reason Marjorie introduces Olena as the widow of Lord Luthor, whose memory is a comfort to us all. Our power derives from men, they're saying. Our nice food and drink and linens, the fool that entertains us, even our house names come from men. Olena was not born a Tyrell, but that's what everyone calls her now. That doesn't mean that women are powerless, though. It means that to wield power in Westeros, women must understand men, often more than the men do themselves. Olena's favorite game is sizing men up dismissively. She tells Sansa <laughs> that she's sorry for her losses, closer and fresher ones than old Grandpa Rickard, who Sansa, as she says, never even met. But when Sansa returns the favor by telling Marjorie she's sorry about Renly, Olena jumps in to say, nah, Renly was a shiny object, full stop. He was all performance, and grieving for him is a performance too. Loras is the only one who really misses him, and ironically, he's not allowed to say so publicly. That's how the Game of Thrones works, Olena says. It's a bunch of shadow puppets who think they're superheroes. That's all Renly was. <laughs> According to Olena, kingship is a disease. The Baratheons got it in their blood from the Targaryens. Crowns mess up the heads underneath them. Or maybe kingship is just a symptom of excess masculinity. Did Loras love Renly? Sure, but who's Loras, says Olena, a kid who likes playing at war with sticks. Maybe his infatuation with Renly is no more meaningful than Sansa's infatuation with Loras. Maybe these are just romantic notions with no place in power politics. Or maybe the problem is downstream of class as much as gender. Olena says that if her family were lowborn, she could have beaten some sense into her son, but she couldn't do that because he's the heir to Highgarden. The big question for me isn't whether these arguments are legit, 
The question for me is whether or not Elena actually believes what she's saying. Alary and Marjorie step in to keep her quiet, oh shush, grandmother, but are they really concerned? Or is that their role? Pretend Elena is a renegade, a silly old lady who just says what comes into her head, when in fact they take their marching orders from her. Sansa is performing, but she's also in the audience. Olenna claims that she tried to stop her son from crowning Renly, because Robert has two sons and Renly had an older brother, so how can he have a claim? It's a coherent argument, but I don't think it's genuine. Does Olenna strike you as someone who really cares what the rules say? Didn't the rules say she should have just meekly accepted her betrothal to Daron Targaryen? As she says, she put a stop to that. I think Olenna hints at her true motives when she compares the Tyrells to the other paramount houses of Westeros, the other houses that run a kingdom. You Starks were kings once, she says. So were the Arryns in the Vale, and the Lannisters in the West, before the dragons came. But the Tyrells were never kings. Like the Tullys, they only came to power because of the dragons. The Tyrells were stewards to the Gardener kings, the last of whom died with basically all his family in Aegon the Conqueror's Field of Fire. Aegon rose the Tyrells up to Lord Paramount status, giving them the castle of Highgarden. And the other Reach Lords were not happy about that, to say the least. <laughs> Keep in mind that so far in the series, we really haven't gotten a sense of that. Like, the Tyrells have been associated with the Reach and kind of vice versa. Like, they seem to be in complete control. Turns out, that's a shadow on a wall like everything else. The Tyrells are, in fact, politically weak in the Reach relative to the Starks in the north or the Lannisters in the west. Their performance of power is to compensate for that. Excellent point. And I think it brings to bear how the Tyrells keep their hold on power, marriage alliances with their vassals. This was the traditional way of maintaining power in Westeros with the Starks, Baratheons, Tullys, Aarons, and even the goddamn Greyjoys in marrying with their vassals throughout their history. Of course, there were attempts by these great houses to get in with the Targaryens and marry outside of their houses, the Baratheons and Aarons intermarrying with the Targaryens a few times in history. The Starks even succeeded with the Targaryens with Jace Valerian allegedly, allegedly marrying Sarah Snow in front of a heart tree. The point being that many of the great houses of Westeros had enough domestic support throughout their history to marry outside of their region. It was different for the Tyrells, though. After being named the Lord's Paramounts of the Reach, the Tyrells were subservient to the Targaryens. And though the Tyrells did try to marry into the Targaryens twice, with Rhaenyra once and then with uh, Olenna with Darren, these unions never came to fruition. Instead, and in fact, if I should go, go back on that, because Olenna was a, was a red wine at the time when she was potentially going to marry with, with Darren, so quick correction on my part there. But instead, what ended up happening is that the Tyrells kept intermarrying with their vassals. Elena herself was a red wine once, and we have Hightower, Fossaway, Bulwer, Graceford, and Merryweather women in the room with Elena and Marjorie. Though these women are not quite given equal standing, the true players here are Elena and Marjorie, with Allery getting an occasional word in edgewise. But they are in the room nonetheless, these women, signaling that politically, the Tyrells are reliant on their vassals for power. I think this is a dynamic we can see in real life, that the people working hardest to broadcast strength are often trying to cover up a weakness. Olena compares it to a pufferfish, blowing yourself up to immense size to fool everyone into thinking you're strong. And hey, if it works, you are strong. As Varus told us, that's how power works. Olena claims to believe that none of this matters, that only oafs like her son Mace worry about legitimacy. But wait, didn't she just say that Renly had no claim to the Iron Throne and therefore his campaign was treason? Olena isn't making a coherent argument here. She's laying down a series of misdirections. 
In truth, we have no idea what part she played in crowning Renly, and we probably never will. My guess is that Olenna does see the utility in making the Tyrells part of the royal family, because then that's how you can manage people back in the Reach. That's how you keep your bannermen down, because we got the crown on our side. Hmm. Maybe that's why Mace stayed loyal to the Mad King, long past reason or sense. But now, as the Great John said while crowning Rob, the dragons are all dead. So who is Olenna supposed to throw her support behind now? And you can see her frustration. It's like, oh, none of the kings are good enough. Renly was a superficial narcissist. Stannis hates the Tyrells along with everyone else. <laughs> and now my foolish son is riding a lion to power like it's a horse. He's going to ride off a cliff like his father before him, paying no attention to where his road is taking him. Olenna, su- Olenna summons Butterbumps the Fool, which sums up her view on men. They're all fools. But at least the literal fools are entertaining, unlike the ones wearing crowns. The clowns dance, we watch, and we find ways of keeping things together in spite of them. So when Olenna says the kings ought to put their swords down and listen to their mothers, she means it. But not in like a sweet, innocent grandma way. Not even in like the Catalan way when Rob was being crowned and she was pleading for peace. That's not what Olenna's talking about. She means it in an I'm smarter than you idiots way. (laughs) Olenna does not hate the Game of Thrones. She hates how it's played because she does it better. And there's no evidence to suggest that she would be worse at playing the Game of Thrones. All evidence suggests that she's playing it really, really well. And I think this is why Olenna and the Tyrells are plotting to do power differently than they did in the past. But now the Tyrells are in the royal Game of Thrones, they aren't planning to be subservient any longer. Do you remember Renly's banner back in A Clash of Kings Catelyn 2? In the Reach, Renly's crown stag was on a Tyrell field of green, symbolizing how Renly's power was sourced entirely to House Tyrell. The Tyrells are here to make moves, to supplant the Lannisters, and in their own unique way, they've co-opted Cersei's playbook from A Game of Thrones, when she got Jaime named as Ward of the East and put her own people into positions of power. As Cersei will discover in A Feast for Crows and Kevon in A Dance with Dragons, the Tyrells are out here not as the nice guys in The Game of Thrones, they're out here to vacuum up as much power as they can as part of the royal family. But their methods are less obnoxiously obvious as Cersei's, they charm their way into gaining more power, bamboozling even Tywin Lannisters will discover it in later Tyrion chapters in A Storm of Swords. In a way, the means by which the Tyrells play the Game of Thrones is confusing to the people of King's Landing. Certainly, there have been charmers and flatters in the court before, as Ned observed when he entered the small council chambers in, in A Game of Thrones in Eddard IV. The Tyrells are just so nice. And even the thorny Olenna is treated, as you were saying, like an outlier that everyone has to hush up. But that Tyrell nice conceals daggers as the conversation turns to Joffrey. Sansa has barely been keeping up with the conversation so far. She's not used to women talking this way, and Olenna does it so quickly and with such authority. All Sansa can do is stick to the script. Renly was very gallant. Mace is a great lord. <laughs> the Tyrells can trace their heritage back to Garth Greenhand. But she's not here just to provide Olenna with a captive audience. The Tyrells want something from her. And while the change in conversation seems abrupt to Sansa, Olenna has been building to it all along. She's been talking about how you can't trust men, how crowns make everything harder to manage, how her son is risking everything by getting in bed with the Lannisters. So what she's really been talking about is Joffrey. He's the fly in the ointment, the crowned lion who can't be trusted to support Tyrell interests. As Littlefinger will later tell us, Olenna zeroed in on the problem of Joffrey from the very start. 
His nature was the sticking point in the marriage pact. Clearly the Queen of Thorns had already gathered intelligence on Joffrey's cruel and violent ways. Littlefinger surreptitiously backed it up. As re-readers, we know where this is headed, what fans have called the Purple Wedding. Olena, de- Olena decides that Joffrey is unsuitable, destined to hurt Marjorie and provoke Loras to, to kingslaying, so she kills Joffrey before that can happen. They still need a king, but Tommen's right there, making Joffrey expendable. <laughs> so then what's Olena doing with Sansa? She's double-checking Littlefinger's stories, dotting the I's, crossing the T's like a good professional. As Olena says... Who would know better? Sansa's been on the receiving end of Joffrey's violence, and also been a witness to his behavior. Now the tone shifts dramatically. It was kind of funny up until this point, Sansa's jaw dropping as Olena deconstructs their society and Butterbumps performs, but that tone of comedy is gone. Olena is demanding the truth, and the truth is what Sansa has kept buried down deep. Smiling for Joffrey, calling Rob a terrible traitor, And suddenly Sansa can't just play along. The camera has turned on her, and all the anxiety comes flooding back. She can barely speak. She glances around, certain this is a trap. Someone is listening. Someone always is. Olena sarcastically asks if the Lannisters have stolen Sansa's tongue. But yeah, that's pretty much the case. They've scared her into silence. So Sansa falls back on her shield. The script. Joffrey is handsome, which is true. And brave as a lion, which is a total lie, but it sounds right. As with her response to Marjorie's invitation, Sansa is still playing the role she played in book one. Now she knows it's a performance. It's no longer the genuine excitement she felt. You know, Sansa in book one, she would have said this and meant it. And now all it means is just a way to avoid being hurt. That's what it's become for her. Olena makes the same argument as Illyrio in Book 5. The Lannisters aren't lions any more than Tyrell farts smell like roses. We are not our symbols. We are people. So what kind of person is Joffrey? Is he kind? Clever? Above all, will he treat Marjorie respectfully as his queen? The answer across the board is hell no, of course, but Sansa knows she can't say that. She's having trouble coming up with anything else. So she repeats herself that Joffrey looks dreamy. <laughs> Olena calls her a fool at this point, and many readers agree. But I don't. Sansa handles herself marvelously on other occasions. There's that great little bit uh, in, the, in the Purple Wedding, right before Joffrey gets killed, where Tyrion and, Tyrion and Sansa are going around, this, around the yard to perform the necessary courtesies. She is good at this, he thought, as he watched her tell Lord Giles that his cough was sounding better, compliment Eleanor Tyrell in her gown, question Jalabar Joe about wedding customs in the Summer Isles. His cousin Sir Lancel had been brought down by Sir Kevon, the first time he left his sickbed since the battle. He looks ghastly. Lancel's hair had turned white and brittle, and he was thin as a stick. Without his father beside him holding him up, he would surely have collapsed. Yet when Sansa praised his valor and said how good it was to see him getting strong again, both Lancel and Sir Kevon beamed. She would have made Joffrey a good queen and a better wife if he'd had the sense to if he'd had the sense to love her. So Sansa does know what she's doing in this kind of situation. What's throwing her off is not a lack of social intelligence, it's that she fears imminent physical danger and is understandably freaking the fuck out about that. <laughs> it's like what you said about Tyrion's wit, his jokes, how they always seem to shrivel up and die whenever he's alone with his dad. When you are brought up against the source of your anxieties and fears, you start to fall apart. 
There's a great quote I always love from the movie The Insider, which is a wonderful movie. I totally recommend if you haven't seen it. They uh, there's a it's about a uh, it's long plot about journalistic ethics and corporations being horrible. <laughs> but there's there's a scene where um, uh, Christopher Plummer is playing Mike Wall- Mike Wallace from 60 Minutes, and he's with Al Pacino, the protagonist, and they're interviewing a family that's been through some shit. And afterwards, Mike Wallace is like, "What the hell is up, up, up with those people?" And Al Pacino just looks at him and says, "Ordinary people facing extraordinary pressure, Mike." What the hell do you expect? Grace and consistency? And I think about that with Sansa too. What do we expect from her in this situation? She has been f- physically abused by Joffrey, and she fears it's going to happen again. And Olena does not care. Olena's wit is a weapon. Olena is a lot of fun, but she's not nice. No intelligence professional can afford to be. That's why Varys fakes his tears. The Queen of Thorns could not possibly care less that the mention of Joffrey sends Sansa into a panic attack, because Sansa to her is an asset, full stop. In the middle of Olenna's interrogation, she pauses to tell a passing servant that she wants the cheese served, and she wants it served now. She's showing the thorns beneath her rosy wit. You are here to do what Olenna tells you. Olenna tells Sansa that beauty like Joffrey's is only skin deep. She references Arion Brightflame, that famously comely and monstrous Targaryen prince. Olenna always roots things in history, right? That's why she brought up Rickard Stark. That's why she brought up the Field of Fire. She's saying, ah, we've seen all this before. Whatever archetype you've been through, Sansa, I know a different version of that. <laughs> Olenna says that she, she used these histories to teach Marjorie that beautiful people can be monsters. And Sansa did not learn that until it was too late. But she's learning now. When Olenna says that Sansa can trust them, the Tyrells, her fellow women, with the truth... Sansa replies that her father always told the truth. Now, that's not the case, as it happens. As we know, (laughs) Ned very much lied about John's parentage and again about Joffrey's parentage in order to save the children, including Sansa herself. What matters for Sansa's story, though, is that she's beginning to recognize the performative nature of everything. Daring to tell the truth usually leads not to deliverance, but punishment. Olena agrees with that. She says, yeah, Ned had the reputation of telling the truth. They killed him anyway. And I love that Olena says Ned had the reputation of honesty, because for her, reputation is all there is. The only honest thing is violence. Sansa can literally see that in her eyes, the light sharpening to sword points. And this is incredible imagery. It's as if Olena's fierce intelligence has become the sword stroke that cut off Ned's head. That was the moment that broke through Sansa's defense mechanisms, and the same thing happens here. Her memories start to overtake the script, but she immediately clamps down. She starts to talk about Joffrey, but then she stops, because someone's going to hear, someone's going to tell. The irony is that she has nothing to fear from anyone overhearing her. The danger is from the people right in front of her. Suddenly, Marjorie is telling Santa to continue. Marjorie's been listening. For how long? Santa doesn't know. That's how good the Tyrells are at this. They function as a unit, more effectively than any of the other major families in the story. They can double-team you, keep distracting you while they get what they want. Sansa is all alone. She has been since they killed her dad. And now she's worried she's doomed herself as well. The only safety is silence. My words, my own voice, will get me killed unless I stick to the script. She tries to again. She goes back to, no, 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 Joffrey's great. My brother was a traitor. But it's all falling apart because it's clear it's, it's just words she's learned. Olena orders Sansa to calm down, which works about as well as it usually does when you order someone (laughs) to calm down. I think Mm -hmm. Olena is just too far removed from the danger Sansa feels as a young woman who's been stripped and beaten by the Kingsguard. 
Olena, after all these decades, she's gotten used to speaking for herself. Marjorie is the one who realizes that Sansa is terrified. She's probably thinking of her own younger self. So how did the Tyrells get Sansa to speak? By having Butterbumps the Fool drown her out by singing the bear and the maiden fair at the top of his goddamn lungs. <laughs> and like the chapter as a whole, this is funny on the surface. Like, it's a great joke of this guy just singing just like at a, you know, glass-shattering level, this song. But it takes on resonance within Sansa's arc. That song represents the way she used to think. She used to take the image at face value. Sansa probably never picked on Sansa probably never picked up on the erotic subtext of the Bear and the Maiden Fair, because kids don't look for subtext, especially the sexy kind. Now Sansa is learning that these songs function as social control. Even propaganda, literally bellowed into your faces by hired clowns. Underneath that performance, the truth can come out. It's no coincidence that Olena now feels free to give away the game. I love when she asks Sansa, what sort of man is this Joffrey who calls himself Baratheon, but looks so very Lannister? He looks so very Lannister. (laughs) The very name and heritage of the king on the Iron Throne is a farce, a hustle, an act we all have to pretend to believe. The real business of power can be discussed in whispers. And like I've been saying, the real business of power is violence, which cuts through all the performances. And so Sansa can finally tell the truth. What Joffrey has done to her comes out with a shudder and a stream of words. It's so cathartic because she's been holding it back so long. And because it's so true. Joffrey is a monster, a brutal killer, unworthy of power. Someone has to say it. It feels right that it's Sansa. Indeed, Sansa has just assigned Joffrey's death warrant without knowing it. Olena and Marjorie share a meaningful glance. Game on. It's both hilarious and chilling how simple it is for them. All Olena says is, ah, that's a pity. Child, <laughs> child murder, I guess that's my next month now. Oh well. <laughs> Sansa is again terrified. The window of speaking her mind slams shut as the consequences rear up. If they cancel the wedding, she could be blamed for it. Oh, don't worry, Olena says. May still wants Marjorie to be queen. Another great misdirection. Olena never says the marriage to Joffrey is still on. She just says Marjorie will be queen. To whom, though? Olena thanks Sansa for the truth. Ironic, given how deceptive the Tyrells are being. It's an ambiguous moment on reread. On the one hand, Sansa has struck back against the monster who tormented her. She said honestly what he's done to her and that it was unacceptable. On the other hand, Sansa doesn't realize that she got Joffrey killed. And she's still afraid for her life. And the people who use this information don't care about her. So while this is justice from uh, what you call the 10,000 foot view, it brings Sansa no relief. And she's going to have to look elsewhere for that. Or will she have to look inside herself to find Mm. that relief? Sansa's story in Clash and Storm is how she has to live any honesty entirely between her ears. And really that extends on into A Feast for Crows and The Winds of Winter. That Sansa was able to come up, come out and say that Joffrey's a monster is really cathartic, as you were saying. It's Sansa taking back a small part of her own agency to admit out loud who Joffrey and who Cersei truly are. But when the revelation is met with mild indifference it almost seems like it's quite a shock for readers it's met by shock by readers and fear by Sansa readers have no idea that Littlefinger had his men go through the Tyrell camp spreading tales of Joffrey's evil and Sansa definitely doesn't know that the Tyrells are plotting to murder this kid 
let's pause at this whole murdering a child thing. We've got a whole purple wedding coming up in A Storm of Swords, so we, let's not pause too long here. But the Tyrells are planning on killing this kid. That's the only reason they brought Sansa here, to validate their plan to murder a child. What a terrible fucking thing to do to Sansa, really. And that's to say nothing of how the Tyrells are further plotting on framing Sansa for Joffrey's murder. You spoke so well about how the Tyrells use the pretext of story, chivalry, and beauty to accrue power for themselves. They've used powerful propaganda to ride their way into power, and soon they'll use an old song to frame Sansa when their Mary Sansa to Willis conspiracy falls through. Remember how Sansa wonders whether Marjorie would think that Sansa was upset about being supplanted? That's the exact story you could see the Tyrells are starting to work around Sansa here. Why would Sansa poison Joffrey? Because she was a jilted fiancé of the noble King Joffrey. The Lancers work as clear early villains in the story, coldly killing people and acting like brutal bullies to those beneath them. And George's point seems to be that you can still smell sweet, dress in the finest clothes, and act nice. But you can also still be a monster, just like the Lannisters are. You can smile and smile and still be a villain, right? It's that classic Shakespeare quote coming to the fore here, I think. Elena, mm -hmm. Elena said that she warned Marjorie against taking beauty at face value. But the Tyrells, of course, make use of beauty themselves, knowing its effect on others. There's a mesmerizing quality to it. When Marjorie Tyrell smiles and locks eyes with you, it makes you want to agree with whatever she says. Sansa is mesmerized here. Not for nothing does George say Marjorie looks like Loras, Sansa's big crush. It's this kind of moment where it's like it doesn't even matter what gender of Tyrell you're talking to, or like what sexuality is. It's just like they're all kind of a hive mind of luring you in and tempting you. Having gotten the information they need, the Tyrells are shifting into temptation mode. It's time to bring Sansa fully into the tent. Highgarden itself is part of the temptation. Marjorie makes it sound as beautiful as her and Loras. It's all elegant buildings filled with flowers and music. We have the best boats, the best horses and hawks, the best of everything. As I said in book two, the reach is where the songs come from. Sansa thinks it sounds like everything she hoped King's Landing would be. But we haven't actually gone to Highgarden yet. And when we do go to Highgarden and meet Willis Tyrell, it'll probably be through Sam's eyes, because he's in the area, and not Sansa's. So in her story, Highgarden is a mirage. By design, it's too good to be true. That's not to say the Tyrells are lying about this. In the moment, they do plan to take her there. But while Sansa dropped the facade and was totally honest with them, they don't return the favor. They're still play-acting. Hence, Olenna's setting Sansa up by wondering if she really does want to come after all. There's that little line. It's like, oh, Marjorie, stop telling, about <laughs> stop telling Sansa about Highgarden. She doesn't really want to come there, do you, Sansa? Like, that's not, that's not being honest, right? Like, that's still manipulating someone in a conversation. Sansa does want to go to Highgarden, of course, but she's still afraid of the Lannisters. When Cersei told her that the betrothal with Joffrey was off, Cersei emphasized, Sansa, you're still my prisoner. But Olena tells her that now, the Tyrells are the real power in town. More specifically, Olena is the power in town because Mace takes his cues from her. He'll propose Sansa visit Highgarden without knowing the secret plan. Marry Sansa to Olena's grandson. Sansa, naturally, develops giant anime heart eyes in response, like I do when you mention Garland <laughs> Tyrell. <laughs> Sansa is all swept up in an intense romantic fantasy about Loras, her new husband. And this is what pure wish fulfillment looks like, right? Loras shining like the sun, innocent and pure, letting her kiss him, touch him, undress him. 
It really captures how Sansa is hovering on the cusp of maturity in this chapter. She was able to realize earlier that Loras had forgotten her, but the fantasy is still a powerful one. And it's interesting how that fantasy is now both chaste and sexualized. Like, Sansa is focusing on, like, you know, the ears, the hair, the dreamy boy band stuff, but she also very much wants to take <laughs> Loras' clothes off. This is the idealized image that the Tyrells promised to bring to life, and no sooner does Sansa seize it than it's taken away. Olena cuts her down, reminding her that the Kingsguard never wed. It would be a fantasy even if Loras wasn't gay. They were talking about Willis, the elder grandson, the heir to Highgarden. While Sansa did jump to conclusions there, this bait-and-switch still represents how the Tyrells function, especially for Sansa. She's so befuddled by the fantasy popping like a bubble that she almost loses the script entirely. It's like this suspenseful moment. It's like watching someone do like a figure skating routine and they wobble and you're like, oh no, are they going to fall over? Like that's what's happening with Sansa here. She knows she has to recover and play nice or she will risk offending them and losing everything. Even when she finds the script again, it's full of assumptions that don't hold true anymore. Sansa calls Willis Sir Willis just kind of automatically, but he isn't a knight at all. His leg was badly broken in a tourney accident. It's never healed. Yet despite not living up to the chivalric norm embodied by Loras, Willis is beloved by his family. Olena pays him the highest possible compliment, not the least bit oafish. He's the one man in Westeros who meets with her approval. <laughs> It's never stated outright, but I think the implication is that Olena has been training Willis, along with Marjorie, as the next generation of Tyrell politicians. More to the point, Willis has a decent, gentle heart. He's the substance of a good husband, if not the ideal. And Olena promises to take Sansa to him soon. That's how you know it's not going to happen. <laughs> Throughout this last chunk of the chapter, George interweaves the dialogue with Butterbumps singing the Bear and the Maiden Fair song in all caps. It's a brilliant formal gesture, uniting the political gamesmanship at work with the sly double entendres of the song. What the Tyrells are doing is the same as what Butterbumps is doing. The Tyrells are performing for Sansa, weaving imagery around her. Sansa is like the sweet, pure maiden in the song. As Butterbumps sings about the bear sniffing the sweet scent of her honey that he licks from her hair, wink, wink, <laughs> Sansa imagines kissing and undressing Loras. When the maid in the song sings that she can't possibly be with a hairy old bear, Sansa learns that they instead want to want to marry her to Willis, the older, less handsome one. But he would care for her. He would lift her high and take her to the fair. So these innocent, childish songs had the seeds of adulthood in them all along. This is George showing you not only how the Tyrells operate, but how he operates, bringing contrasting perspectives together into a whole, more than the sum of its parts. And I think that's how you arrive at kind of like the thesis statement for me for a lot of Sansa chapters going forward, which is that songs lie, but we keep singing them anyway. So we got to find some kind of meaning in them. Mm, that's that, I love when you bring up those points. That's something we're going to explore when it comes to the uh, cinema and film in, the, in our uh, Waltz with Bashir episode coming up in a few days for our patrons. And, and what I love about this Sansa marries Willis conspiracy is how it feeds into Sansa's eventual marriage to Tyrion later in A Storm of Swords. Although this plot point is among my least favorite in the book, George is setting this up here with this information. Tyrion has a deformity much like Willis. He was wounded in battle and is much older than Sansa. 
And there's a veneer of Tyrion being nice or kind to Sansa, at least in Tyrion's mind. The reality is much different as we'll unpack in later Tyrion and Sansa chapters in A Storm of Swords. But that's also what this entire conversation with the Trells has been. A bunch of fake-ass frenemies who pose as nice but truly aren't. Sansa is learning another part of the game, one which will make her successful as Queen of the North in the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring. But instead of being a poser like those fucking Tyrells, I think Sansa will learn that being kind and courteous, the genuine type, will reap rewards that the Tyrells will never experience. The Tyrells have wielded power of playing nice in some hand and also showing the thorns, the hard and the soft power in such a way that you think that they are master players in the Game of Thrones. And they are, in a sense. At the same time, the fact that they're not genuine is going to have some significant consequences for the Tyrells come a feast for crows. And that would, I think, would be the case even if Cersei wasn't a paranoid lunatic, as we're going to find out in A Feast for Crows. So, shifting us into uh, foreshadowing and groundwork, we uh, we brought up my boyfriend, Garland Tyrell, earlier. And yeah, George <laughs> briefly pauses to show us Garland fighting multiple opponents at once in the yard and kicking all their asses. Loras even concedes that his brother is the better swordsman, which is a big deal. Loras is kind of an, an arrogant young man, so if he says his brother mm-hmm. is better, that means his brother is really, really good. And we haven't really seen Garland <laughs> wielding his, his sword in battle yet, so to speak. Judging from how things are going by the end of Feast for Crows, Garland Terrell is raising men along with Willis to deal with Euron, so I think what we're seeing here is set up for Garland eventually being a badass in the Reach when Euron invades. I think whatever happens there, Garland will play a role in it. I think you're right. I think Garland's going to be a major character in The Winds Winter, as George has talked about. And I can see that focus being on trying to defeat Euron Greyjoy and the Ironborn that are invading the Reach in The Winds of Winter. I also do think it's it's interesting that this para- this conversation parallels one of the early conversations from A Game of Thrones where Jon is talking about how he's the better sword, but Rob is the better lance when we have that we have in, in one of those early chapters, one of those early Jon chapters from A Game of Thrones. And, and I think... A lot of those dynamics from the Starks that we see early in the book end up getting reflected out here in the Tyrells, just in a little bit of a different context. And But that context is important because it is something that Sansa is able to glom onto, and it's something that... It's something that it's, it's a way for Sansa to feel that she is joining a new family, similar to, has, to, similar to her old family, even if it's much more subconscious than conscious on the page. And speaking of the other Tyrell brothers... Uh, they Elena brings up Willis's injury here, his injury in attorney mishap, and she blames it on Oberyn uh, quite angrily. And Tyrion will bring up Willis's injury to Oberyn, but there's an interesting kind of, kind of uh, surprise to our expectations there when Oberyn says, "Actually, Willis never held that against me, and we're actually good friends. Like we we you know exchange letters about horses all the time and stuff." And that, <laughs> as in this chapter, I think that's that's George setting up that Willis Terrell, who we haven't met yet, is a really unusually decent guy, and like he's a guy who's like you know he had this horrible injury, but he had the perspective to think, "Oh, that wasn't my opponent's fault actually," and he's a good he's a decent guy too. And that you know that's you know a, there's a lot of a lot of petty assholes in Westeros who never reach that kind of <laughs> level of enlightenment, and Willis is there. So I think that's we're supposed to be prepared to meet him on that basis, I think. I think that's brilliant, and I think there's a magnanimity, mag, magnanimity, magnanimity, whatever, whatever the word is. Yeah, exactly. That yeah. word. Well, it's, there's, yeah, the English language is so easy, guys. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's brilliant because I think Willis is a character much like Stannis in a Game of Thrones is set up off page entirely so mm-hmm. that when we meet this guy in the Winds of Winter, he becomes a 
a, a character in his own right. And I'm curious to see whether the image is whether the actual person is going to match the image that were presented here in Sansa One and that later Tyrion chapter. I think it's Tyrion five or six. I, I think it it's brilliant because I, I think the the interesting dynamic is that I think the character I think the character is going to match the the image that's been that's been propped up around him. And I think, as we're going to talk about in that later Tyrion chapter, I do think there is a potential element of conspiracy there where why is Oberyn talking to the Tyrells again? Why, why is he interested in this? As we're going to find out in A Feast for Crows, the conspiracy to bring the Targaryens back into power may have played a part in why Oberyn was conversing with the Tyrells. So wheels within wheels is, is something that is a, a big part of A Storm of Swords and definitely is going to have some particular unfoldings come the winds of winter. So moving into our, our theory and discussion portion for the episode, obviously what everyone remembers this chapter for is the introduction of Olena Tyrell. And, you know, Olena actually doesn't appear in that many chapters in A Song of Ice and Fire. Like, there's just there's not much of her after this until we get to the Purple Wedding. And then she only appears in a couple chapters in The Feast for Crows. But she's, she's so distinctive and charismatic that I, w- I want to put forth kind of kind of a theory here that George fell so in love with Olena but didn't really have much to do with her in the plot so we ended up kind of recreating her in other characters <laughs> in, in other parts of of, of the uh, of the story. Do you think that's a, a fair argument? I, I think it's more than a fair argument. I think that George is in love with these sharp-tongued ladies. I think that's mm-hmm. a huge part of what animates the way that George writes these women. Now, George does not write all of these women in the same exact way. He's not writing old women who are sassing men all every single time. In fact, we tend to like change like the age of some of these women. For instance, we have Barbara Dustin, who is more of a middle-aged type, mm-hmm. kind of in her late 30s, early 40s. The Robert's Rebellion generation. Yet, yep. Right. So she's about 40 years younger than Olena Terrell, but she still has these kind of sharp rebukes for the men uh, in and around uh, uh, the, the Winterfell court. And I think it's... It, it's and she's also... <laughs> Much like Olena, she's very uh, she's very a dick oriented, shall we say, <laughs> politely. You know, she's very much talking about uh, about Brandon's sword and how he liked to use it, and he loved it when it was it was red as well, like a like a sword. And you know, the, Olena is uh, is interesting because she's in her eighties at this point in the story, and yet she's still fondly reminiscing on 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 that aspect of her of her uh, of her life story. I I think when George writes these women, I think he. I think there's 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 potentially a sense, and I want to get your take on this. There's a potential sense that it kind of becomes kind of a stock character of these women just sassing men or brown, <laughs> and that is something that like he just thinks is just so great because he's subverting expectations because women are supposed to be this one sort of mold and model in medieval type fantasy, but they're not. And I think that George does a good job of running a variety of women with a variety of different circumstances and ways of playing the Game of Thrones, from Catelyn and Sansa and Marjorie to your Elenas and your Barbary Dustins. You think it's a fair assessment, or do you think that there's there's more at work in, in the, the depictions of women in Westeros? I think it's in part a pro, uh, just part of the writing process, not only that he, he likes characters like this, but that when he starts thinking about each region of the country each part of Westeros and how I'm going to develop this further, what minor characters I want here when main characters are crossing their paths. And he thinks, okay, so who's being left behind when all of these people are going off to war and who are the people chafing at restrictions? It's probably a lot of middle-aged and older women who are often left in charge of the castles like we see with Lady Smallwood in A Storm of Swords and who often have been uh, chafing at those restrictions for a long time as we see with uh, Alanis Harlaw, uh, Theon and Asha's mother. So it's kind of a natural development, I think, as he explores these areas further, because that makes sense as the characters who are left there when your your Rob Starks and your Robert Baratheons are all gone and dead. 
I think he does also kind of use that to flesh out, in Barbary's case, the Roberts Rebellion stuff and give a different angle on that. Like, oh, a northern person from that era who doesn't just worship the Stark image and who thinks the Starks kind of sucked <laughs> and screwed her over. That's interesting. That complicates our understanding of, of that era. And, Bar- yeah, Barbary is... She has that, that Olena wit, like when Theon's talking to her and she's just making fun of everyone in the room. That feels very Olena. But she's got this... She's got this real raw emotional edge and a sense of tragedy to her. And I don't... Th- I don't think Olena never had that. I just think maybe by the time we meet Olena, like, that's gone. Like, she's she's ironed that out. Hmm. Like, whoever, you know, maybe Olena genuinely loves somebody. We don't know. Maybe she fell in love with someone when she was young, and she made the decision that's, that's got nothing to do with who I marry. And Barbie was not ever able to make that jump, but maybe if Barbie Dustin lives on to Olena's age, maybe she will be just as cold and, and methodical. Hmm. And we're seeing a, kind of the more younger, torn-apart version of that. Um... And even over in Essos, we get a we get a, a the widow of the waterfront, uh, a truly badass yes. one off character who's like that's if Olena grew up in a situation uh, where it's it's even harder to wield power as a woman than and then Western or even not even wield, harder to wield power as a woman, but specifically in her her, her case harder to wield power as an enslaved woman, which is something mm-hmm. that Olena has never had to deal with. So like like widow of the waterfront, uh, I, I wanted to know what you think about this. Widow of the waterfront feels like half Olena, half Danny to me. Like if you if you like yes. you smooshed those characters together, that's who you would get. I yeah, I mean she she strikes me as kind of um, I, this this is a weird analogy. I, I I will just come off the top of it, but I I think of those propaganda posters from like the uh, the Glorious Revolution, not the Glorious Revolution, uh, Mao's revolution, the Cultural Revolution sure. in China, where you'd have these posters, these women with like a with like an AK forty seven like walking around sort of thing, you know? Yeah, sure. Like kind of the revolutionary, but a, but a revolutionary in in power. And, uh, you know, obviously, in this case, I don't think that uh, Olen will be responsible for the murder of millions of people the same way that the uh, Cultural Revolution did in, in, in China. Uh, but at the same time, you know, George can't help but just rewrite these characters. Even as late as The Winds of Winter, we meet this character, Lady Lady Mertens, mm-hmm. who is a, based on a on someone who, um, based on someone that George actually knows in real life. There's actually, I, I can't remember her first name, but her last name is Mertens. And uh, you have to imagine that this may have been like the... Uh, the Ur character, the Ur Elena Terrell that George met in his real life. Sure. And this was the, uh, and then he couldn't help, but as he's writing A Dance with Dragons at the time when he thought that Ariane Chapters would be in, in, the, in A Dance with Dragons, that he decided to pay a little tribute to the the person who inspired the Elena Terrells, the Lady Barbara Dustin's, the widow on the waterfront, by actually including Lady Mertens in The Winds Winter, where she's there sassing the Golden Company and being like, oh yeah, really, really, these women just just voluntarily like gave up their virtue to to you because you're just so strong and amazing, right? You're so beautiful. That's That makes a whole lot of sense. And uh, and then she goes. Well, she she chastises um, she chastises John Kinsey like I knew your mom, and she'd be fucking pissed at you for what you were <laughs> right. doing here in the Stormlands. It's it's brilliant and and, and it's beautiful. I, I think I think the characters like Mertens and Widow in the Waterfront I think are interesting because a lot of the time what they express is a sense of independence mm. and a sense of authority. But it's not this kind of manipulation that we see with Elena Terrell and Barbara Dustin, where you're never really being sure if they're expressing their actual opinion or they're just being thorny mm-hmm. because they are playing a role in the game. Lady Barbara Dustin is very much playing a role in A Dance of Dragons, much as Elena Terrell is doing here in A Storm of Swords, Sansa 1. The Widow on the Waterfront and Lady Mertens are not playing a role. They are truly expressing themselves. And I wonder 
in a sense, whether as George is writing later in A Song of Ice and Fire, he's like, these are who these women are actually. And these are the true opinions of women who are, under t- are experiencing the terrors and horrors of war and the terrors and horrors of a masculine patriarchal culture. And this is their true response to that, as opposed to these women who are using the pretense of expressing their true feelings in order to conceal more than they actually reveal. I like that, that with Elena, we're kind of seeing the platonic ideal and then with a bunch of other characters who are trying to fit that role and being held back in some way. And just the one more I wanted to mention was uh, was Jenna Lannister. Because um, she she has that line about about Tywin. All men are thundering great fools, which sounds very very <laughs> Olena esque, right? That's exactly how she talks in this chapter. But with Jenna, there's this also real sadness in that she's like, like yeah, I, I love what yeah Jenna says something like, I don't approve of what he grew to became, which is like as close as Jenna can get to saying the red wedding was awful. <laughs> like hmm. she politically can't hmm. say that, but like that's as close as she's gonna get to like the red wedding was awful, murdering Rhaegar's kids was awful. My brother's a monster. I know that. But she's also like, he was the only one who gave a shit what happened to me. He was the only one who cared. No one else did. And like, that's the kind of conversation we never get with Elena. And again, I, I think there was probably moments like that. But like, that's what you, because, because you don't have a POV in the Tyrells, you don't get that moment. Because you only get that moment with Jenna because she's talking to Jamie. And she can kind of let her guard down a bit. Yeah. And so you get that sense from the inside of that great moment when Jenna says like, I've been watching you Lannister men my whole life. And I'm the authority on this. So believe me when I tell you, <laughs> Tyrion is Tywin's son, not you. And that's such a powerful, mm. ambiguous, amazing family moment that, and this is even the criticism, just the way the Tyrells are constructed, you can just, you're never going to get that moment with the Tyrells. You can't have it because they have to be the ones who are doing it right. And maybe if we were on the inside, we would see that Olenna is as, has as many flaws and doubts as anyone else. But the point is, is that when you're talking to Olenna, you don't feel that way. You feel like you're the flawed one. And she, she does a great job. She really does do a great job, and I think George does a great job. Well, let's let's let me let me qualify that. George does a pretty good job of, of writing women in in fantasy. At least he is he's better than most. Stepping I beyond, I think that's a great way of putting it. I think maybe not great, objectively great, but in, in a way that makes uh, as as a man writing woman, men writing women, which is of course is a uh, excellent website and a <laughs> subreddit actually. Mm-hmm. Um, George sometimes falls into some of those uh, those unfortunate stereotypes that that of men writing women, but in a lot of ways he does a really good job, and I think that's uh, to his credit. And I think we're all all for the better of having the character of Olena, Barbara Dustin, Widow in the Waterfront, Lady Burton's, Jenna Lannister, and so many more in A Song of Ice and Fire. Indeed. So I think that is going to wrap us up for this analysis of A Storm of Swords, Sansa 1. As always, thank you so much to all of you for listening, and thank you to those of you who have been watching on our livecast. As always, if you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf, or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is brendabeefish.substack.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words. Septon Maribald, the Shoeless Sage. Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Sir Way, of course. Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Sam Kay. Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies. Septon Merrifull, Head of Hair. 
Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Builder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wielder of Dark Sisters, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who has abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the, queen, become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir, Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planeto Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Warden of the Lake, Lady Can of House Motown, Goddess of Sips and Wine, Sir Andrew of H-Town, and Hortense of Ashai. Thank you so much, as always, to all our High Lords and Ladies for your support. Absolutely. Thank you all very much for supporting us every month. It means so much to both of us. So, join us in two weeks' time for A Storm of Swords, John 1, in which we meet Emmett's other boyfriend slash doppelganger, Mance Radar, who Mance Radar, Mance Raider, who becomes John, who welcomes John into the fellowship of the free folk with open arms and only just a just a question or two, just one or two things. You have a uh, something going on that we need to know about, and we'll be joined by a returning guests, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald of the Golden Tooth, Master the Banefort, and the Kraken's Bane. And next week, as Emmett takes the week off in quotation marks. I will let him explain if he wants to why he's taking the week off, uh, if you all want to listen to that. I'll have a very special Jeff episode for you all titled, George R.R. R. Martin was right to abandon the five-year gap, the five-year gap, and you are a fucking coward if you disagree. Should be a nice, fun episode. I think that everyone will enjoy. Very gentle, very relaxed, very smooth. It's true. You are all, you are all, none of you are free from sin and you are all blocked. <laughs> Best kind of Jeff episode. <laughs> I can't wait to listen to it. And yes, I'm, I'm going just uh, out of town. With the with my wife Chloe just for for a few days after after celebrating having a, a wedding reception for us so thank you so much Jeff for filling in for a week and then I can't wait to come back uh, with uh, with John Snow and Mance Raider and uh, having on Micah for that episode it's going to be great that's a great chapter I cannot wait to do that with you sir and enjoy your time off I think that'll be excellent and wonderful and uh, yes all of us are smiling and wishing you all both the best. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you as always for watching and for supporting us on Patreon. We'll see you next week or two weeks time for Storm Swords, John 1. <laughs>